When I was growing up, we had one table prayer that we would say before almost every meal we ate. It went a little something like this, and a lot of you can probably say it along with me. It went, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let these gifts to us be blessed, amen. But imagine my shock and my surprise when I found out in college that that's not the only prayer that other people were praying at their dinner table. In fact, most of my Catholic friends, they were praying something like this. Bless us, O Lord, for these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Well, table prayers, they hit a little differently as an adult. And I'm not just talking about the fact that for some reason, when you graduate seminary and become a pastor, you automatically become the expert prayer for Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter. And you have to perfect giving a deep, meaningful prayer that also finishes before any of the food gets cold. No, I'm talking about a realization that actually hit me just the other day. You see, I was about to sit down and enjoy a fine meal of Nashville hot chicken tenders and garlic toast and mac and cheese when I stopped to pray as I usually do before the meal. And I said, God, bless this food to my body that it would nourish me. And then it hit me. It felt just a little weird to ask that Nashville hot chicken tenders were going to be a blessing and a nourishment to my body. Doesn't that just feel a little strange? You see, prayer is one of those things that for the people of God can be a little bit complicated because while prayer can be powerful and meaningful and while the language we use in prayer can reach to the deepest parts of our soul in confession and repentance, it can ask God to intervene. Prayer can also become rote or kind of stale or too traditional or silly or hard. We're facing a moment though, in our nation and in our lives, when rote and stale and boring prayers just don't cut it anymore. You see, whether it's COVID or the deepening racial divide or political estrangement or national crises or global needs or loneliness or illness or the breaking of unity and respect, rote and stale and boring prayers, they just aren't enough to cast meaningful change. No, in a world that's this broken, we need big, bold prayers. We need the type of prayers that aren't afraid to acknowledge before a God who is good and loves us, who we are and who we've been. We need prayers that seek repentance and reconciliation for the ways that we've fallen short of the calling God gave us. We need prayers that confess our sins in ways that are specific and aren't just blanketed. We need prayers that celebrate the faithfulness of a God that always has been and a God that always will be. We need prayers that genuinely ask for the wisdom and the guidance that God says he will freely give us. And we need prayers that seek his movements in order to accomplish things that we could never do on our own. We need big, bold prayers. Well, the church in Acts, they prayed prayers like that. Prayer for our church fathers and our church mothers, it wasn't trivial, it wasn't rote, and it certainly wasn't boring. For the church in the book of Acts, prayer preceded, walked with, and followed after the movement of God. And if the Acts Church valued prayer like that, why wouldn't we? 
This morning, we're gonna look at three functions of prayer in Acts. And then I'm gonna invite you to reflect with me on three questions for spirit-led prayer. So let's get started. You see, the early church, they had a lot of decisions to make, from leadership to teaching to missions to care. But before they made any of those decisions, they began with prayer because they knew that prayer provides spirit-filled guidance for next steps. We see this rhythm of praying for God's guidance before making decisions as early as Acts 1. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, or if you're following along online or using version, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Starting at verse 15, it says this, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, or the company of the persons who was about 120, and he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his ministry. And then parents, you might want to skip the next part because it gets a little PG-13 about how Judas died. So then it says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice and Matthias, And they prayed and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And then they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So what we see here is that even though the disciples certainly knew which of the men among them had leadership giftings, which ones had the right temperament, which ones could handle the responsibility, which ones had integrity, rather than choose a replacement for Judas on their own, they prayed and they trusted that God would bring forth the right leader. Leadership matters. But a ministry leader without a heart that's tethered to God can be absolutely dangerous. Can I get an amen? And so the disciples prayed earnestly, knowing that God could evaluate what was in each man's heart and bring forth a leader that would do well and do good. We also see the disciples do the same thing, praying before the movement of God in Acts 6, when they pray over Stephen and the other leaders who have been chosen to carry on the ministry to the widows. You see, the disciples early on in the early church, they understood the importance of prayer to shape leaders and movements and to ensure that the right people are moving forward with the right plan. God has an ability to give wisdom and unity like no other. And so we pray for spirit-filled guidance for our next steps. Whether it's choosing a school or shopping for a house or praying for an upcoming big decision, prayer helps to center us on God's plan instead of ours. Prayer also puts spirit-filled words to broken situations. 
There are a lot of broken situations in the world today, aren't there? And it's tempting for us to act or to speak into them before we pray, to instinctively respond, especially with how quickly we can put words out onto social media. Well, there was no Twitter and there was no Facebook for the early church to have to grapple with. We do see that their immediate response to difficult and painful and broken situations was to come before God in prayer, knowing that God can act on our behalf in ways that we could never act alone. In Acts chapter 12, we find out about a difficult situation that the early church was facing. Starting in verse one, it says, about that time, Herod the king, who laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, killed James, the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. Now, what we see here is that the church in Acts, rather than immediately spring into action, rather than immediately make a plan, rather than immediately even respond, they first go to prayer. And we see what happens starting in verse six. It says, now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell from his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and they went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and he rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What we find after that is that when Peter goes to Mary, the mother of John's house, what does he find them doing in verse 12? He finds them praying. In fact, they're praying for Peter's release so fervently that it's a servant girl who has to go and answer the door and they almost can't even be bothered to go to the door and see that Peter is out of jail. The Bible tells us that when we don't know what to pray, the spirit actually intercedes for us with wordless groans. And so we pray before the conclusion is reached. We pray in the middle of the mess. We pray without knowing the answers or the diagnosis or the timeline. We pray to put words to situations that are too broken for us to even name. Finally, we see that prayer seals and it celebrates the work of God. Toward the end of the book of Acts, Paul prepares himself to leave the church in Ephesus. He gives this final, incredibly moving speech to them, saying this in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 18. 
He says, you yourselves know how I have lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions do await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He then goes on to explain that he knows that pain and trials are going to come. And he lifts this young church up before the Lord. And at the conclusion of all of this, we are told, starting in verse 36, that when he said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of it. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. You see, celebrating and mourning are two important things that we do to mark the closing of a season. But as a part of that, we seal endings with prayer. Prayer that until we meet again, whether it be on this side or heaven's side, that God would go with us. Prayer to seal and offer before the Lord everything that was just done. Prayer to remind us all that what came before was God's this whole time and that what will come after will be God's. If the church in Acts prayed this fervently, if they prayed before they saw God move, during the middle of some of the toughest trials and after God moved, so should we. So should prayer be this crucial, critical act for us. Not something that's just rote or rehearsed or boring, but something that's thoroughly exciting and transformative and so, so precious. Out of the prayer life of Acts, we're able to ask ourselves three questions. The first question is this, does our prayer life reflect an agendaless expectation to hear from God? In our prayer, it is so easy to say, God bless our plans, isn't it? It's harder, but it's so much better for us to be able to pray, God, what are your plans? Early on, we talked about the church and acts praying before they chose leaders. In doing so, though they knew each of the leaders that they were putting before God, they earnestly trusted that God was going to give them the better answer. Does our prayer life earnestly invoke God's presence, ask for his wisdom, and seek his voice? Or do we go in prayer just seeking a divine rubber stamp of approval for our own plans? Secondly, does our prayer life reflect a sincere belief that God will and can act? The church in Acts, they didn't come to God halfway. They didn't pray thinking, well, maybe God will answer, but probably he wouldn't. So we should just start coming up with plans on our own. But when they prayed, 
They prayed trusting in the character of God, trusting that the God who had showed up before would show up again and that the God who acted before would act again. When we pray, do we genuinely go in prayer expecting to hear from God? Do we genuinely believe that God can act or do our prayers just feel empty and hollow and expectationless? Finally, does our prayer life reflect a desire to be obedient no matter the answer? This might be one of the hardest questions because the truth is that God won't always answer our prayers the way that we expect God to or want him to. In 2017, we did a whole series on prayer where we talked about four ways that God can answer our prayers. Yes, no, try again, and wait. When we pray, do we come into prayer with a genuine desire to be obedient to God's voice and to God's answer, even if we don't agree with it? Are we willing to have our minds changed and in the process to have ourselves changed as well? Do we come with an immovable agenda or do we come with a firm desire to be faithful followers first, even when, maybe even especially when, following Jesus takes immense faith and feels hard. This way of praying, this whole life embodied open prayer, it was modeled for us by Jesus. When we look at Jesus's life, we see a life that's in tune with the Father. We see a life marked by deep and personal prayer and a desire by him to teach us to pray in ways that cultivate a personal relationship with God that draw us in to be changed by him, that place God's will above our own. We see the markers of a spirit-filled prayer life, one that's compelling and transformative. You see, prayer, it is no small thing. It's just as crucial for us today as it was for Jesus and as it was for the early church. When I was in seminary just down the road at Bethel, I had a favorite study spot. It was this small room down in the basement of the seminary library that they called the flame room. And on the door, there was this small hand-carved plaque that had this image of a heart on fire. I thought it was pretty curious. And because I'm a little bit of a secret society nerd, I did some more research into it. And as it turns out, that logo, that room, and that name comes from a previous Bethel president named Carl Lundquist who had created this group during his tenure at Bethel called the Order of the Burning Hearts. Coming from the time in the Gospels when Jesus, resurrected, walks among the two on the road to Emmaus, and they declare afterwards, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us along the way? The group emphasized prayer and the reading of scripture as crucial to the life of a Christ follower as crucial to a heart continually being reformed and being set on fire by Jesus. Jesus, Lundquist later said in a sermon in Bethel's chapel, is not just an idea, not just an intellectual postulate, not just a theology to be studied, important as all of that is, but he is a person to be loved, someone to enter into experience with someone to have such an intimate fellowship with that we feel like these two disciples did not our hearts burn within us when he talked with us along the way and when he opened to us the scriptures. Prayer kindles the type of relationship with God that we long for 
the most. And not only does God accept or welcome this relationship, God actually taught us how to have this relationship with him. He initiated for us what it looks like for us to pray to God as a friend, to walk and talk alongside him. If you're new to praying, or if you're in a season like many of us have been in, where you could use someone to come alongside you and pray with you when you can't even find words to pray yourself. Our care pastor, Mike Lindsay, would love to help. You can connect with him by going to emmanuel.church/next and filling out our virtual connect card. But as we close today, would you go with me to being able to learn from Jesus what it looks like to pray? Would you walk with me as we walk with God, as we say we're not our hearts burning within us when we talked to him? And would you close today by praying the prayer our God taught us to pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.